Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I am your host, Carrie Parker. Today, we have episode 339 for August 28th, 2023. Got a news show for you this week. Plenty of news to catch you up on. But real quick, before I get into that, uh, this is your last call. The Dragon Challenge Coin promotion for new patrons will be ending this week. You have until Thursday, the end of the month, if you want to snag one of those super cool security-enhancing Dragon Challenge coins by becoming a new patron, go to fdsd.me slash promo823 for all the details and get them all you can. Uh, I will be doing this again at some point. I'm not sure when, but it could be a while. <laughs> so take your opportunity while you can. So we have a new show for you this week. As I said, we're going to be talking about some Mac malware as well as some Android malware. I'll be telling you about a new Illinois law that makes it possible for people to sue when somebody doxes them, and we'll talk about what that means. Meta is planning to roll out end-end encryption for Messenger finally, they say by the end of this year. Some LinkedIn user accounts have been taken over. Apparently, there's a big focus on hacking people's LinkedIn accounts, so I'll tell you what to do about that. Apparently, Intel is joining the club and collecting a lot of personal information, or potentially personal information, just from their GPU drivers. I was not aware this was a thing, but apparently it is. And Intel's not the first. Tesla has had a data breach that apparently impacted 75,000 employees, and apparently it was an insider job. Many U.S. tech companies are threatening to leave the United Kingdom over some privacy uh, issues. Police are getting DNA from people who think they have opted out of sharing information with law enforcement, but they're getting it anyway. A Pennsylvania court has said that state police cannot hide how it monitors social media. The Freedom of the Press Foundation has some really good tips for people to protect their data uh, in light of the recent police raid that took a lot of stuff from a newspaper, I think it was, in Kansas. There's an article from a brand new 404 Media, which apparently was formed by some folks that, that came from Vice, since Vice, I guess, was shut down. And it's about an online tool that hackers are using to dox basically anyone for about $15 to $20, and what's behind that information, and where they're getting that information is really the more interesting part of that. And finally, a short comment about how the NSA has ordered its employees to spy on the world with dignity and respect. And I've got a take on that that might not be what you would assume. And finally, for the tip of the week, we'll do part three of my series on securing your home network. And we are on phase three, which is assess. So there's your preview. And now let's get into the details. All right, first up, this is from TechRadar. And it's about some Mac malware that's going around. It says, if you stumble upon an app that claims to be a productivity solution called Office Note, ignore it and walk away. It's just a piece of malware trying to steal sensitive data from your macOS device. Cybersecurity researchers from Sentinel One recently published a blog post detailing their discovery of a brand new version of Xloader, an eight-year-old malware as a service, which now comes written in an entirely different pro programming language, but capable of wreaking just as much havoc as before. As per the report, Xloader is an info stealer and a botnet that's capable of stealing secrets stored in people's browsers and more. The older versions were written in Java, but given that macOS no longer supports it by default, the new version is written from scratch in C and Objective-C. Furthermore, it's shipped with an Apple developer signature. And I'll come back to that in a minute. 
The signature has since been revoked by Apple, but Cupertino's built-in malware blocker, XProtect, is yet to start spotting the malware, they say. The info stealer is growing immensely popular, the researchers further claim, saying that, quote-unquote, multiple submissions popped up on VirusTotal last month, an indication of rising popularity. On the dark web, the Mac version of the service costs $199 a month, or $200 a month for three months. That makes no sense. Quite the price hike compared to the Windows version, which is $59 a month or $129 for three months. There must be some sort of typo in that. <laughs> Those prices make no sense for the Mac version. Anyway, moving on. If you do end up installing Office Note on your endpoint, you'll get a message saying that the application doesn't work. In the background, however, the application works just as intended, dropping payloads and installing persistence agents. If it runs unchecked, the malware will try to steal secrets from the user's clipboard and look for secrets in Chrome and Firefox. Interestingly, though, Safari isn't being targeted. So the article just kind of ends right there. It doesn't tell you much more. But if you have, for some reason, installed this application, you definitely want to remove it ASAP. And you might want to start being on the lookout for, you know, potentially having some of your accounts stolen or hacked into if, if for some reason it was able to steal passwords or anything that you may have on your clipboard. In other words, anything you may have copied. So real quickly, it talked about the Apple developer signature. And Apple requires software developers for Mac OS and iOS to create developer accounts. And that sets them up to have certificates or, uh, or signatures for every app that they write so they can be validated with Apple and with the device. So in situations like this, where a bad actor somehow gets one of these valid signing certificates, allowing them to basically sign apps so that Apple says, oh, that, that looks legit, they can remove or revoke those licenses so that the Mac no longer accepts them. But I think once it's installed, that's the only time that check is made. I don't think Apple goes back and looks for signatures that have been revoked, which honestly, I think it should. And, and maybe it does. I, and maybe I'm just not aware that it does. But anyway, that's what they were talking about when they were referring to the developer signature. All right, let's move on. Here's a brief article from Tom's Guide about some Android malware. Hackers are always cooking up new ways to get their malicious apps onto your smartphone. The latest tool in their arsenal is a new type of Android malware that can conceal itself from the best antivirus apps by using a novel anti-analysis method for Android package or APK files. That's according to recent findings from Zempirium, a mobile security firm dedicated to identifying and eliminating malware from the Google Play Store. APKs are package files that are used to install and distribute apps across Google's mobile ecosystem. These malicious files and by the way, APKs aren't malicious. These There's a particular type of APK in this case that is malicious, but not all APKs are malicious. That sounded funny the way this was worded. These malicious files resist decompilation, aka the process antivirus software uses to flag suspicious code, and that is just one thing that they do, by using unsupported or heavily manipulated compression algorithms. Since this tactic is unknown to antivirus programs and cybersecurity researchers are only just discovering it, it enables malware to pose as a regular app and completely bypass security measures. A Zimperium report published this week found 3,300 APKs using this suspicious compression method in the wild. Zimperium notes that it didn't find evidence that the apps affiliated with the 3300 APKs flagged in its analysis were listed on Google Play Store at any point in time. That suggests the apps were distributed through alternative means such as third-party app stores or sideloading. The best Android phones have always offered the ability to sideload apps by downloading and installing an APK file, though you'll first need to enable the ability to install apps from unknown sources in your phone settings. And while sideloading has its legitimate use cases, it's also free 
frequently exploited by bad actors to sneak malware into otherwise legitimate-looking apps. The good news is, if you don't sideload apps on your Android phone, you're unlikely to be at risk of having this type of malware. So actually, going back to the Mac one as well, in that case, I'm pretty sure that the macOS app uh, they were talking about was not in the official Mac App Store. It was something you would have had to find and download and try to install on your own, which, which macOS allows you to do unless you change your security settings. But normally the settings are such that you can install things from the App Store or anything signed by an Apple developer, which again is where that signature comes in. You can actually set your settings to only allow apps from the App Store, but that that can be kind of restrictive. And yet that's exactly what I recommend that you do for your smartphones is you only install things from the the actual Apple or Google app stores. On Apple, that's currently your only choice, though there is uh, legislation in the works that might require this in both the EU and uh, other places like the United States. But on Android, it's pretty much always been possible to uh, on your smartphone devices to sideload apps that didn't come from the Google Play Store or to get apps from Play Stores other than Google's Play Store. But the best thing to do for your security is to only use the Google Play Store and the Apple App Store. Okay, moving on. This is from Ars Technica, and it's about a new Illinois law allowing people to sue other people who dox them. Now, before I even get to this article, let's talk about doxing real quick. And if you're not familiar with the term, doxing, spelled D-O-X-I-N-G or D-O-X-X-I-N-G, is a take on the term documentation. And so doxing someone is basically publishing information about them, their quote unquote documents, probably personal information, or at least information they wouldn't want made public on some sort of an online forum and, you know, in, in a way that publishes it to the world in a, in a form of harassment. For example, somebody recently published the names and home addresses of the people on the grand jury that recently handed down an indictment for former president Donald Trump. And those people are now getting threats. So you could argue that information is public information, but you would have had to have known their names. If you knew their names, you could probably look up their addresses. But somebody went to the trouble of finding all information and published it all at once in a public in a very public forum. And so therefore, that is considered doxing. Okay, now let me read the article with that as background. Last Friday, Illinois became one of the few states to pass an anti-doxing law, making it possible for victims to sue attackers who intentionally publish their personally identifiable information with intent to harm or harass them. The Civil Liability for Doxing Act, which takes effect on January 1st, 2024, passed after a unanimous vote. It allows victims to recover damages and to request, quote, a temporary restraining order, emergency order of protection, or preliminary or permanent injunction to restrain and prevent the disclosure or continued disclosure of a person's personally identifiable information or sensitive personal information, unquote. It's the first law of its kind in the Midwest, the Daily Herald reported, and is part of a push by the Anti-Defamation League, or ADL, to pass similar laws at the state and federal levels. ADL's Midwest Regional Coordinator, David Goldenberg, told the Daily Herald that ADL has seen doxing become, over the past few years, an effective way of, quote-unquote, weaponizing the internet. ADL has helped similar laws pass in Maryland, Nevada, Oregon, and Washington. Illinois' law was motivated by a doxing attack on a business that subsequently shut down. The uprising bakery and cafe was doxed last year after it planned an all-ages drag brunch, which triggered threats of violence against the bakery's owner, Karina Sack, and vandalism of the establishment. Goldenberg told ours that the doxing tore apart Sack's business. 
And after the bakery closed, ADL raised nearly $50,000 through a GoFundMe campaign to help her recover. While many states don't have doxing-specific laws, some have passed laws against online stalking, harassment, and cyberbullying that allow victims to press criminal charges against those who dox them. But few laws, Goldberg told the Daily Herald, help people financially recover from doxing the way that the Illinois law seeks to do. The ADL's ultimate goal is to see a federal anti-doxing law passed, but right now Congress is only taking small steps in that direction by mulling the Doxing Threat Assessment Act introduced in May. Rather than provide legal remedies for doxing victims, this federal law would, quote, require the Department of Homeland Security to develop and disseminate a threat assessment regarding the use of cyber harassment, including doxing, by terrorists and foreign malicious actors and for other purposes, unquote. Congress may be right to exercise caution in passing anti-doxing laws, according to the ACLU of Illinois, which opposed the Illinois law that passed this month. ACLU of Illinois' Director of Communications and Public Policy, Ed Yonka, told the Daily Herald that his organization remained opposed because the law could infringe on free speech rights. The ACLU's chief complaint seems to be that individuals could be sued for sharing publicly available personal identifiable information that any ill-intentioned person wishing to confront others in person could readily find. Goldenberg told ours that the Illinois law was written to emphasize not how the information was found and gathered by people seeking to dox others, but on what they did with the information and how much harm they caused. The law might need less updating as the internet evolves if it doesn't focus on the methods used to mine personally identifiable information. So I agree, this is, this is tough, right? You've got to be careful when you start, you know, making people criminally liable for things they post online, especially if that information is publicly available and true. And yet, doxing is a thing, and it causes real harms, as this article calls out. So we'll come up with laws like this, and we'll have to tweak them as we go if we find that, they're, that they don't do what they think they're going to do, or if they have unintended consequences. But at least we're trying and, you know, hopefully making some progress on this. All right, next up, this is from TechCrunch, and this is about Meta or Facebook. Meta said today that the company plans to enable end-to-end encryption by default for Messenger by the end of this year. The tech giant is also expanding its test of end-to-end encryption features to, quote, millions more people's chats, unquote. The company has been building end-to-end encryption features into Messenger for years now. However, most of them have been optional or experimental. In 2016, Meta started rolling out end-to-end encryption protected through a secret conversations mode. In 2021, it introduced an option for voice and video calls on the app. The company made a similar move to provide an end-to-end encryption option for group chats and calls in January of 2022. In August of 2022, Meta started testing end-to-end encryption for individual chats. There is increasing pressure on Meta to enable end-to-end encryption so the company or others can't access users' chat messages, and I'll come back to that in a minute. Protecting individual communications has become more important after a girl and her mother in Nebraska pleaded guilty to abortion charges in July after Meta handed over her DMs to cops. Last year, the police prosecuted the 17-year-old based on data about her direct messages from Messenger provided by Meta soon after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, a 1993 judgment to make abortion legal. In a letter to the digital rights advocacy group Fight for the Future, this month, Meta's Deputy Privacy Officer Rob Sherman said that it will roll out end-to-end encryption to Instagram DMs after the Messenger rollout. He also mentioned that, quote, the testing phase has ended up being much longer than we anticipated, unquote, because of engineering challenges. Yeah, if you don't design with privacy in mind to begin with, it's a lot harder to bolt on after the fact. Authorities around the world have been exploring rules that could put encryption and messaging apps at risk. 
While Meta was pushing back on these proposals through WhatsApp to support end-to-end encryption, it is yet to fully build out these protections for Messenger and Instagram DMs, which, of course, they are now planning to do. So that's a good thing. So just a couple things. Remember that Meta still makes the app itself, and therefore, because it is at the end, end-to-end encryption just means that it's encrypted between the two ends. At either end, it's necessary to be able to read the messages. So they have to be unencrypted. And that's where the app is. So all this is really saying is that the messages as they go through Meta's servers, you know, Facebook, Instagram, etc., those messages on the servers will be encrypted. And therefore, employees of Meta will not be able to get to them. They can hand them over to authorities, but they'll be encrypted, which if they're encrypted properly, should mean that they're useless. And they can't really be stolen by cyber criminals. I mean, again, they can, but they'll be encrypted. But at the end of the day, Meta still has access to the contents of your messages because they wrote the app. And they probably will be looking at the contents of those messages to serve you ads, for example. So anyway, not saying it's not a good thing. I'm just saying keep in mind that it, it when they say, for example, that Meta won't have any way of reading your messages. Well, they they kind of do, but they at, it's only at the device level. All right, next up, this is from Tech Radar, and it's about LinkedIn user accounts being hacked. Someone is targeting LinkedIn accounts, trying to break in with either login credentials leaked elsewhere or with brute force attacks. As a result, many people have had their accounts compromised, while others have been locked out due to too many failed login attempts. Earlier this week, CyberInt reported that many LinkedIn users took to social media platforms such as Reddit, Twitter, or Microsoft forums to ask for help. And by the way, LinkedIn is owned by Microsoft now. LinkedIn's customer support, it seems, is being overwhelmed with requests, resulting in unusually long response times. And this is a quote from cyber researcher Coral Tayar. Quote, some have even been pressured into paying a ransom to regain control or faced with a permanent deletion of their accounts. While LinkedIn has not yet issued an official announcement, it appears that their support response time has lengthened with reports of high volume of support requests, unquote. Sharing their experience on Reddit, one user said their account got hacked six days ago and that the email associated with the account was changed in the middle of the night. The victim asked the company for help to no avail. Quote, no response from them anywhere. It's pathetic. I tried reporting my hacked account, going through identity verification, and even DMing them on at LinkedIn help on Twitter. No responses anywhere. What a joke of a company, unquote. While the goal of the campaign is unknown, as is the identity of the attackers, the researchers did manage to find out that the emails are being replaced with those from the rambler.ru service. This doesn't necessarily mean that the threat actors are Russian, but it gives some credence to the notion. As for the goals, social media accounts can be used for malware distribution, social engineering, or fraud. Messages received from friends and colleagues on social media platforms usually have a higher open rate than those coming from complete strangers, possibly resulting in more successful malware campaigns. So if you have a LinkedIn account, you should absolutely turn on two-factor authentication if you have not done so already. And uh, I would even recommend that you double check that because (laughs) when I read this article, I went to check mine just to be sure that it was turned on and it wasn't. So it turns out I had two LinkedIn accounts, uh, one that I no longer use, and on my new one, I had not turned it on, and I'm not sure why. Uh, It may have been that when I did this a long time ago, they didn't even have two-factor authentication available, so I couldn't turn it on, and so I just assumed later that I had, because I always do, but (laughs) but I hadn't. So anyway, double-check this. Make sure you've got your two-factor authentication turned on for LinkedIn. Next up, this is from Extreme Tech. 
And this is something I didn't know was a thing. I'm not surprised now, just shaking my head, but let me read this article and then you'll know too. And before we get into this, just real quick, GPU is graphics processing unit uh, and a discrete GPU is usually like a dedicated card, like something you would put into a tower PC. That's what they mean by discrete. A lot of motherboards have GPUs uh, already built onto the motherboard or some of them actually have them built into the CPU chip itself. But in this case, we're talking about a dedicated separate card or, or some sort of dedicated hardware. When Intel joined the discrete GPU market almost a year ago, everyone wondered when it would catch up with NVIDIA and AMD. As of August 2023, it apparently has, at least in one respect. Like its competitors, Intel has introduced a telemetry collection service by default in the latest beta driver of its ARC GPUs. You can opt out of it, but we all know most people just click yes to everything during a software installation. Intel's release notes for the drivers don't mention this change to how its drivers work, which is a curious omission. News of Intel adding telemetry collection to its drivers is a significant change to how its GPU drivers work. Intel has even given this new collation routine a cute name, the Intel Computing Improvement Program. Gee, that sounds pretty wonderful. According to Tech Power Up, which discovered this change, Intel has created a landing page for the program that explains what is collected and what isn't. At a high level, it states, quote, This program uses information about your computer's performance to make product improvements that may benefit you in the future, unquote. Though that sounds innocuous, Intel provides a long list of the types of data it collects, many unrelated to your computer's performance. These include the types of websites you visit, which Intel says are dumped into 30 categories and logged without URLs or information that identifies you, including how long and how often you visit certain types of sites. It also collects information about, quote, how you use your computer, unquote, but offers no details. It will also identify, quote, other devices in your computing environment, unquote. Numerous performance-related data are also captured, such as your CPU model, display resolution, how much memory you have, and, oddly, your laptop's average battery life. Though this sounds like an egregious overreach regarding the type of data captured, to be fair to Intel, it allows you to opt out of this program. And I don't think that's fair, by the way. I I think it should be opt-in. Anyway... This is apparently not the case with NVIDIA, who doesn't even ask for permission at any point during driver installation, according to Tech Power Up. AMD, on the other hand, does give you a choice to opt out like Intel does, regardless of what other options you choose during installation, and even provides an explainer about what it's collecting. The Computing Improvement Program is listed as an optional feature for Intel's 101.4578 beta drivers for Arc GPUs, and the company provides a link to the page above to see what it's tracking. You can easily uncheck the box if you don't feel comfortable with the amount of data collection it offers, so be vigilant when installing these drivers. Also, although Intel's decision to add this feature to its drives may be disconcerting, it's par for the course these days, as we explained above. It's just a surprise it took Intel this long to adopt it. Windows 11 also transmit a lot of user data, though it can be challenging to pin down the exact details. And that is putting it mildly. Uh, It's really hard to lock down Windows in terms of privacy. It collects a lot of crap by default. So anyway, I I didn't even think about this, but sure, why not? (laughs) Everything wants to collect your data. Uh, It should not be shocking that there is now yet another commonly installed piece of software that will want to collect personal data and have it be opt out by default, meaning you've got to find the setting and make sure you turn it off and don't just say yes to everything when you install something. All right, next up, this is from TechCrunch, and it's about a Tesla data breach of internal employee information. 
Tesla has said that insider wrongdoing was to blame for a data breach affecting more than 75,000 company employees. Tesla, the electric car maker owned by Elon Musk, said in a data breach notice filed with Maine's attorney general that an investigation has found that two former employees leaked more than 75,000 individuals' personal information to a foreign media outlet. This information includes personally identifying information, including names, addresses, phone numbers, employment-related records, and social security numbers belonging to 75,735 current and former employees. Tesla said two former employees had shared the data with German newspaper Handelsblatt. The outlet assured Tesla that it wouldn't publish the information and that it is, quote, legally prohibited from using it inappropriately, unquote, according to the notice. Handelsblatt reported in May that Tesla has been hit by a massive breach revealing everything from employees' personal information to customer complaints about their cars. The publication obtained more than 23,000 internal documents, dubbed the Tesla files, containing 100 gigabytes of confidential data. This included employees' personal information, customer bank details, production secrets, and customer complaints about Tesla's full self-driving features. According to Handelsblatt, Musk's social security number was also included in the leak. Tesla filed lawsuits against the employees allegedly responsible for the data breach, which resulted in the seizure of the employees' electronic devices. This incident comes after Reuters reported in April that Tesla workers shared sensitive images recorded by customers' cars. Between 2019 and 2022, it was reported that employees shared invasive images and videos recorded by car cameras. And I talked about that when it happened. So my take. First of all, again, this is internal employee info, which, so if you're a Tesla driver, this should, shouldn't affect you unless maybe you've had some correspondence with Tesla, the company. Sounds like maybe some of those uh, emails and things may have leaked. But now we have to realize these companies probably needed to maintain a good bit of this information. I mean, they're employees. Right? They probably had to keep some of this very personal information about these guys. But what they didn't do apparently is restrict access to this data. And, you know, maybe these people were in human resources. Maybe they were supposed to have access to all of this data. I don't know. But they still somehow managed to get a lot of documents and a lot of information. So even if you work in HR, do you need to somehow download everybody's data into a file onto a thumb drive or something? Probably not. So you, you can raise flags when someone does a mass copy of information, even if they're supposed to have limited access to that information. But anyway, it just goes to show again that, I mean, humans will be human and data wants to be free. <laughs> so it, it's, it could be hard to lock this stuff down. So the, you know, the next best thing is to collect as little as possible to retain it for as short a time as is necessary and basically treat it like nuclear waste. All right, moving on. This is next one's from the BBC. And it kind of relates to something we were talking about earlier with Meta's end-to-end encryption. It was difficult to maintain a poker face when the leader of a big U.S. tech firm I was chatting to said that there was a definite tipping point at which the firm would exit the U.K. I could see my own surprise mirrored on the faces of the other people in the room, many of whom worked there. They hadn't heard this before either, one told me afterwards. I can't tell you who it was, but it's a brand you would probably recognize. I've been doing this job for long enough to recognize a petulant tech ego when I meet one. From big tech, there's often big talk. But this felt different. It reflected a sentiment I have been hearing quite loudly of late from this lucrative and powerful U.S.-based sector. Many of these companies are increasingly fed up. Their tipping point is U.K. regulation, and it's coming at them thick and fast. The online safety bill is due to pass in the autumn. Aimed at protecting children, it lays down strict rules around policing social media content with high financial penalties and prison time for individual tech execs 
if the firms fail to comply. One clause that has proved particularly controversial is a proposal that encrypted messages, which includes those sent on WhatsApp, can be read and handed over to law enforcement by the platforms they are sent on, if there is deemed to be a national security or child protection risk. The NSPCC Children's Charity has described encrypted messaging apps as the quote-unquote front line of where child abuse images are shared, but it's also seen as an essential security tool for activists, journalists, and politicians. Currently, messaging apps like WhatsApp, Proton, and Signal, which offer this encryption, cannot see the content of these messages themselves. WhatsApp and Signal have both threatened to quit the UK market over this demand. In the UK, proposed amendments to the Investigatory Powers Act, which included tech firms getting home office approval for new security features before worldwide release, incensed Apple so much that it threatened to remove FaceTime and iMessage from the UK if they go through. Clearly, the UK cannot and should not be held to ransom by U.S. tech firms, but the services they provide are widely used by millions of people, and rightly or wrongly, there is no U.K.-based alternative to those services. So this article goes on. It's actually, I I didn't really like the way a lot of this article was written, to be honest. It goes on to talk more about regulation of big tech and the, you know, push and pull, the political push and pull between big tech and governments trying to regulate them. But this is a really important issue, particularly the end-to-end encryption part. And even the part saying, look, you can't add new security features unless you check with us first. I mean, that's just not viable. I don't know how they expect that to work. But from what I've been hearing, this is likely to pass. So we're going to see what happens. (laughs) We're going to see what happens when they pass this. And it, it could get ugly. All right, next up, this is from The Intercept. And this is yet another cautionary tale about sharing your DNA with online services. And this is, by the way, a really, really, really long article. <laughs> I'm just going to read part of this, and it, it's probably three to four times longer than even what I'm going to put here. So if you want more information, you can get in the show notes. Cece Moore, an actress and director-turned-genetic genealogist, stood behind a lectern at New Jersey's Ramapo College in late July. Propelled onto the national stage by the popular PBS show Finding Your Roots, Moore was delivering the keynote address for the inaugural conference of forensic genetic genealogists at Ramapo, one of only two institutions at higher education in the U.S. that offer instruction in the field. It was a new era, Moore told the audience, a turning point for solving crime, and they were in on the ground floor. Quote, we've created this tool that can accomplish so much, unquote, she said. Genealogists like Moore hunt for relatives and build family trees just as traditional genealogists do, but with a twist. They work with law enforcement agencies and use commercial DNA databases to search for people who can help them identify unknown human remains or perpetrators who left DNA at a crime scene. The field exploded in 2018 after the arrest of Joseph James D'Angelo as the notorious Golden State Killer, responsible for more than a dozen murders across California. DNA evidence collected from a 1980 double murder was analyzed and uploaded to a commercial database. A hit to a distant relative helped a genetic genealogist build an elaborate family tree that ultimately coalesced on D'Angelo. Since then, hundreds of cold cases have been solved using the technique. Moore, among the field's biggest evangelists, boasts of having personally helped close more than 200 cases. The practice is not without controversy. It involves combing through the genetic information of hundreds of thousands of innocent people in search of a perpetrator, and its practitioners operate without meaningful guardrails, save for quote-unquote interim guidance published by the Department of Justice in 2019. 
The last five years have been like a Wild West, Moore acknowledged, but she was proud to be among the founding members of the Investigative Genetic Genealogy Accreditation Board, which is developing professional standards for practitioners. And this is a quote from Moore, quote, with this incredibly powerful tool comes immense responsibility, unquote, she solemnly told the audience. The practice relies on public trust to convince people not only to upload their private genetic information to commercial databases, but also to allow police to rifle through that information. If you're doing something you wouldn't want blasted on the front page of the New York Times, Moore said, you probably should rethink what you're doing. Quote, if we lose public trust, we will lose this tool, unquote. Despite those words of caution, Moore is one of several high-profile genetic genealogists who exploited a loophole in a commercial database called GEDmatch, that's G-E-D-M-A-T-C-H, allowing them to search the DNA of individuals who explicitly opted out of sharing their genetic information with police. The loophole, which a source demonstrated for The Intercept, allows genealogists working with police to manipulate search fields within a DNA comparison tool to trick the system into showing opted-out profiles. In records of communications reviewed by The Intercept, Moore and two other forensic genetic genealogists discussed the loophole and how to trigger it. In a separate communication, one of the genealogists described hiding the fact that her organization had made an identification using an opted-out profile. The communications are a disturbing example of how genetic genealogists and their law enforcement partners, in their zeal to close criminal cases, skirt privacy rules put in place by DNA database companies to protect their customers. How common these practices are remains unknown, in part because police and prosecutors have fought to keep details of genetic investigations from being turned over to criminal defendants. As commercial DNA databases grow and the use of forensic genetic genealogy as a crime-fighting tool expands, experts say the genetic privacy of millions of Americans is in jeopardy. To Tiffany Roy, a DNA expert and lawyer, the fact that genetic genealogists have accessed private profiles while simultaneously preaching about ethics is troubling. And this is a quote from her. She says, quote, if we can't trust these practitioners, we certainly cannot trust law enforcement. These investigations have serious consequences. They involve people who have never been suspected of a crime, unquote. At the very least, law enforcement actors should have a warrant to conduct genetic genealogy search, she said. Quote, anything less is a serious violation of privacy, unquote. So again, I, those are just excerpts. This is a very, very long article that gets into several other details. Uh, so if you are interested in this story at all, um, in particular, if maybe you have uploaded genetic material to some sort of a public database, even if you think you have opted out of sharing that genetic material with other databases, you might want to read this article. Uh, and then <laughs> you might want to contact whatever service you may have used, even if it's not GEDmatch, because... I do know that some of these services, Ancestry and others, have the option to share with GEDmatch, and maybe those options are on by default. I'm not sure. Or maybe the option for sharing with law enforcement is on uh, by default so that if you share it at all, uh, it will automatically be shared with law enforcement. I don't know that for sure, but if you have uploaded your DNA to any such service, I would be checking on that to find out and be sure. Uh, you can probably ask them to delete your information as well. And, you know, maybe you want to do that. All right, next up, this is from the Associated Press. And it's about police trying to hide how they monitor social media. It's very short. Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruled Tuesday that the state police can't hide from the public its policy on how it monitors social media. Advocates for civil liberties cheered the decision. The law enforcement agency had argued that fully disclosing its policy for using software to monitor online postings may compromise public safety. 
Andrew Christie, a lawyer with the ACLU of Pennsylvania, said the ruling, quote, sort of puts law enforcement on the same playing field as all other government agencies. If they have a legal justification to keep something secret, then they have to put forth sufficient evidence to justify that, unquote. People need to know what police are doing in order to decide if it's appropriate, he argued. And one final quote from Christie, quote, Ultimately, that relies on the voters understanding what law enforcement is doing so that then, through their elected representatives, they can rein them in when they're acting in a way that doesn't comport with what the public wants, unquote. And this article is a little bit longer than that, but that was the gist of it. And yeah, I think I think we have to have transparency. And, you know, I think there should be warrants for a lot of this kind of monitoring, to be honest, even if it's publicly available information, I guess. I don't know. It's 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 fuzzy. A lot of the problem with these tools is the scale at which we can do these things. You know, there is information that used to be public, but it was a lot harder logistically to get that information. Like you actually had to go physically somewhere like a county clerk's office to get that information. Uh, But now it's available online anywhere on the globe 24 seven. And with certain tools can just be scraped indiscriminately and searched. So it's really a matter of scale in a lot of these cases, even if it's publicly available information. And yeah, as a, as a voter, I need to know what my government is up to so that I can decide who I want to put in office based on their wanting to adopt or not adopt some of these policies. So anyway, I, I think transparency is almost always a good thing. You know, obviously there's national secrets and things like that where you have to be very careful, but we we, we tend to go the wrong way on that and overclassify way too much stuff and try to keep way too many secrets. So anyway, in this case, I think it's a good thing. All right. Next up, this is from the Freedom of the Press Foundation. I would love to interview somebody from from them. Uh, I think I've reached out a couple times in the past. Uh, I need to keep up on that. But anyway, this really is a very informative article, and that's why I'm including it. Uh, it doesn't really actually talk about the, the reason they're writing this article, which was a raid by the Marion, Kansas Police Department on the Marion County record, which uh, was a local newspaper, caused a major kerfuffle, as it should. But anyway, the the upshot of of that was this article uh, for other news organizations and really anybody on how you might want to protect your data. So let me read this article. Based on the reporting we've seen so far, the Marion, Kansas Police Department raid on the Marion County record appears to violate federal law and the First Amendment. While this shouldn't have happened in the first place, we can't assume law enforcement will always follow the law. However, journalists can take some straightforward steps to better protect newsroom data and to maintain continuity during an emergency. And again, by the way, this is really true for anybody, not just newspapers. While the record and all newsrooms should be able to operate without these kinds of press freedom violations, knowing what digital security vulnerabilities police may have exploited during the raid gives media organizations insight into defending against these potential vulnerabilities. According to court documents, officers seized two cell phones, four computers, a backup hard drive, and reporting materials. In a video recording of the police raid, and there's a link here if you want it in a, at a timestamp. Officers were heard discussing whether they can turn off a computer tower with one officer stating, quote, I don't believe this is encrypted, so I think we're okay, unquote. When seizing a device, law enforcement officials hope yours is unencrypted because an encrypted device is significantly more time-consuming to examine without your permission. Without encryption, law enforcement can use the device just like you can, making your most sensitive reporting materials and internal communications up for grabs. The good news is is If you have a modern, up-to-date iPhone or Android phone, your device is encrypted by default just by having a password. 
Older Android devices may not be encrypted by default, but you can check by going to your settings app and looking under security ses- settings for disk encryption. It may also be device encryption or under a similar name. Thousands of U.S. law enforcement groups have access to tools to help crack your password, particularly on older phones and phones with short, predictable passwords. If you can help it, the longer and more random password you have, the better. We recommend a password manager which can generate and store your passwords. 1Password is free to newsrooms under the 1Password for Journalism program. To learn more, check out our guide to securing your smartphone, which of course is a link. Unlike your phone, however, your desktop computer likely does not have encryption enabled by default. You can turn this on manually. On macOS, you can enable device encryption in your settings using FileVault. On Windows, you can enable device encryption with BitLocker. And by the way, I'm pretty sure that is still only available to enterprise and up. I don't think BitLocker device encryption comes by default with the home version. There are some weird exceptions to that, but there shouldn't be any exceptions. So anyway... The password and recovery code need to be stored somewhere safe, like that password manager we just mentioned. It's important to note that many types of device encryption are only activated when the device is fully turned off. To sufficiently protect your phone or computer with encryption, turn it all the way off. Don't just put it to sleep. Now, actually, I think that's really more for your computer than your phone. Most people don't turn their phones off ever. Most people don't turn their computers off ever, honestly. But if you're in a situation where you're not sure, like maybe you're, you have a little bit of foresight, like you're going to a protest or you're crossing the, uh, a border somewhere between countries, or you think you might be searched for some reason, then that might be the time to turn everything all the way off. During the raid at the record newsroom, Kansas police seized a single backup hard drive. We are not aware of what other backup devices the weekly news outlet may have had, but the incident underscores the importance of regularly maintaining backups in more than one physical location in case these devices are ever seized, lost, stolen, or break down over time. Or let's say there's a fire or a flood or tornado or something at the location. This is not just about security. This is about minimizing disruptions to newsroom operations. One of the easiest ways to make a backup on your own external hard drive is with Apple's built-in time machine tool on macOS, as well as the backup and restore settings on Windows. On Apple devices, you can also make end-to-end encrypted backups using Apple's iCloud Advanced Data Protection Mode, meaning even Apple can't read them. And while you can make remote backups using Microsoft's built-in backup tools, Windows machines do not have an end-to-end encryption option at this time, making them vulnerable to legal requests. If you feel in control of your physical space, local backups on your own hard drive can be safer. Also taken from the record newsroom was reporting material, underscoring the importance of encrypting individual files or folders you want to keep secure on USB storage devices. For example, Windows can use BitLocker to go to encrypt external USB drives, and macOS users can encrypt USB storage with disk utility. All major desktop operating systems support Veracrypt. Check our guides on picking which encrypted USB storage option works best for you. Our digital security training team supports newsrooms in the need of digital security assistance, and we're always happy to talk through these issues. Reach out here, which, of course, is a link. Okay, so again, this was targeted for journalists in the wake of this police raid on a local newspaper, which I'm very interested to see how that's going to shake out legally. But a lot of this applies to everybody. So there's really good advice in there. And again, there are some links in there to some of these guides they're talking about if you want to get more info. All right, just a couple left here. This one's from 404 Media, and this is a new journalistic group, uh, I guess. Uh, They're online only, as far as I know. Vice or Motherboard, I think, was shut down. Uh, And so these four people started 404 Media uh, and are trying to keep that journalism alive. And they've got an article here 
about a rather disturbing service that you can access through kind of the dark webs. All right. It only took a few seconds to uncover the target's entire life. On the messaging app Telegram, I entered a tiny amount of information about my target into the dark blue text box, their name and the state I believed they lived in, and pressed enter. A short while later, the bot spat out a file containing every address that person had ever lived at in the U.S., all the way back to their college dorm room more than a decade earlier. The file included the names and birth years of their relatives. It listed the target's mobile phone numbers and provider, as well as personal email addresses. Finally, the file contained information from their driver's license, including its unique identification number. All of that cost $15 in Bitcoin. The bot sometimes offers a social security number, too, for $20. This is the result of a secret weapon criminals are selling access to online that appears to tap into an especially powerful set of data, the target's credit header. This is personal information that the credit bureaus, Experian, Equifax, and TransUnion, have on most adults in America via their credit cards. Through a complex web of agreements and purchases, that data trickles down from the credit bureaus to other companies who offer it to debt collectors, insurance companies, and law enforcement. A 404 Media investigation has found that criminals have managed to tap into that data supply chain, in some cases by stealing former law enforcement officers' identities, and are selling unfettered access to their criminal cohorts online. This tool, 404 Media Tested, has also been used to gather information on high-profile targets such as Elon Musk, Joe Rogan, and even President Joe Biden, seemingly without restriction. 404 Media verified that although not always sensitive, at least some of that data is accurate. Overall, the tool offers exceptional power and requires little to no technical sophistication to obtain a victim's sensitive data. Worse yet, it is exceedingly difficult for a user to opt out, and this data may be available even for, even for people who have otherwise been careful with distributing their personal information and who have taken steps to have their details scrubbed from other data brokers. 82% of American adults had a credit card in 2022, according to data from the Federal Reserve. Whenever someone applies for a credit card, their financial institution transfers personal details about the customer to the big three credit bureaus, Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion. This is in part so the bureaus can track a user's credit score. In other words, the majority of the adult population, by simple fact of how credit cards work, will have their personal information collected and stored by these bureaus. The bureaus also play an important role in preventing fraud by holding onto people's most sensitive personal information and using it to verify their identities. But years ago, the bureaus realized that they had such a valuable resource of data and diversified what they did with that information. John Gilmore, head of research at Delete Me, a company that helps scrub people's data from the internet, said, The bureaus made some of the data provided by consumers, known as the credit header information, available to other companies. The FTC, or the Federal Trade Commission, defines credit header information as the portion of a consumer's credit report that typically contains the person's name, birth date, current and prior addresses, social security number, and telephone number. Essentially, it can include everything on a person's credit report above the details of who they have borrowed money from, the top, or the header of the document. While credit reports themselves are limited to certain uses, such as applications for credit under the Fair Credit Reporting Act, or FCRA, credit bureaus and data brokers generally believe credit header falls under a different piece of legislation, the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act, or GLBA. This law gives the credit bureaus room to sell credit header information to third parties under a set of use cases that are much broader than the full credit report. Examples include to protect against fraud or the vague term, quote, holding a legal or beneficial interest relating to the consumer, unquote. 
The third-party companies that buy or receive the credit header information in turn often resell or provide access to it for a fee to private investigators, real estate investors, and other industries. One company called Alumni Finder, for example, sells GLBA data so educational institutions can, quote, reach and engage lost alumni, unquote, according to its website. Immigration and Customs Enforcement has used similar data that flowed from utility companies to Equifax which was then sold to data brokers. And in March, the FBI and National Counterintelligence and Security Center warned that foreign intelligence entities working for repressive regimes have sought access to private investigators in part to obtain personal information on targets in the U.S. At some point in that trickle-down of data, criminals have found a way in. In 404 Media's own tests, while Delete Me is a helpful tool at removing personal information from a myriad of people search sites, At the time of writing, it does not appear to cover the sites these criminals are using, nor does it prevent the tested Telegram bot from gaining access to information that is otherwise not easily available. Gilmore from Delete Me said that the company is constantly adding new services to track, and some are more responsive than others. That game of whack-a-mole presents another, more fundamental issue. Curtailing the spread of credit header information will persist until it is stopped at the source the credit bureaus. But for the ordinary consumer, it can be very difficult to get the credit bureaus to stop selling their data to third parties, and perhaps impossible to have them deleted entirely, given their continued role in combating fraud. So I don't know how much to add to that, but it's pretty obvious what the problem is here, and what we need to do about it. And that is regulation, unfortunately. And honestly, we don't need to go after these guys specifically, we just need broader privacy protections that would encompass this. Our data is being collected and sold willy-nilly. It is a total, total Wild West right now. All right, last one, and this is very short, and I've got kind of a, <laughs> had an odd reaction to this article, and so I'll, I'll share that with you after I read this part of it. And this is from The Intercept. The National Security Agency, the shadowy hub for the United States electronic and cyber spying, has instructed its employees that foreign targets of its intelligence gathering, quote, should be treated with dignity and respect, unquote, according to a new policy directive. The directive, released this summer as its internal guidance, is for the NSA's vaunted Signals Intelligence, or SIGINT, division, which is responsible for covert surveillance and data collection worldwide. And this is a quote from NSA Director uh, General Paul Nakasone, and it just says, quote, In recognition that SIGINT activities must take into account that all persons should be treated with dignity and respect, regardless of their nationality or wherever they may reside, unquote. Civil liberties experts say the PR-friendly directive is an attempt to mollify European partners and American critics amid a simmering congressional debate over whether to reauthorize the NSA's broad surveillance authorities. Experts also pointed to the absurdity that the NSA, an intelligence agency that specializes in electronic eavesdropping, included the interception of text messages, including the interception of text messages and emails, could do so respectfully. And this is a quote from Evan Greer, director of Fight for the Future. And uh, Evan said, quote, this is like the CIA putting out a statement saying that going forward, they'll only waterboard people with dignity and respect. Mass surveillance is fundamentally incompatible with basic human rights and democracy, unquote. Okay, so I'm not going to disagree with Evan on this. Sure, we. <laughs> I've got a lot of problems with mass surveillance. But nevertheless, I mean, this is saying the right thing. I mean, even if it's for the wrong reason, it <laughs> we absolutely need to treat people with dignity and respect. And there's a lot of ways that they're not doing that in my view. 
But anyway, I just thought it was kind of crappy to <laughs> to dump all over someone saying this because it's the right thing to say. But, you know, of course, we should be pushing back against the mass surveillance programs and and whatnot and asking for warrants and then more transparency, yada, yada, yada. We've talked about this many times before. But General Nakasone is saying the right thing. And so I, I'm not going to diss him for that. Encouraging your employees to do the right thing is not wrong. Okay. Now, we don't have a Dear Carrie question this week. I'm actually running out. Uh, I've answered most of them at this point, and people, for some reason, have stopped submitting them. I will remind you that once a month, even though I'm not announcing it here, I am pulling out a winner of a free PDF copy of my book to people who have submitted questions. So I'll circle back to this at the end of the show, but that's why we haven't had a Dear Carrie question uh, recently. Okay, so uh, let's get to the tip of the week then. And this is part three of my four-part series on securing your home network. And so, so far we've had a scan phase and we've had a simplify phase and phase three is assess. And so this is now that we have figured out everything that's at our network. And now that we have removed uh, as many devices from that network as we can simplify, reduce now with whatever's left, we need to figure out where we stand. We need to kind of take stock of what's left. And so, of course, there's a blog article uh, on my website, Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons, if you want to go check out the full article there. Again, if you're a newsletter subscriber, this is already in your inbox waiting for you to read. But let me give you the, the basics here. So we have listed every, all the devices in our network. We've gotten rid of the ones we no longer need or taken them off the network, at least, and made them dumb. And now we're left with uh, these listed devices. And some of these are computers, some of these are smartphones and maybe tablets. And probably some IoT devices, maybe a smart thermostat, maybe some smart switches, who knows? There, there are a lot of these things out there today. So at this point, before we go to the trouble of updating the software on all these devices, we need to kind of take stock of what we've got and ask ourselves some questions. And these are some of the kind of questions that I want you to ask. So going through this list, you know, what is this device actually doing? What purpose does it serve? What's it doing for you? And then not just you know the things that you use it for, what else might it be doing? Make sure you're aware of all the things this device actually does. And then you know, think about catastrophe. What, what's the worst thing that could happen if, if this device failed or if the service it depends on goes away? Do I need a backup for this device or the functions that this device performs or the data that it keeps? What would happen if this device was compromised? What information could it divulge to bad actors? Are there any unnecessary features that you might want to disable? Is it sharing data that you would might want to opt out of? You probably should dig through the device's settings and configuration. And by now you should kind of know how to do that. But if not, that's something else you need to do is figure out how I configure this device. So that would let me know, for example, what software this device is running, what version of software it's running. That is usually somewhere in its configuration. Maybe that requires an app on your phone that you need to talk to it. Maybe the device has a web page that you can hit, kind of like your home router, where if you know the device's address, you can log into that web page and then configure it from there. Maybe it's got some sort of a cloud configuration, but you're going to need to know what that is because that's probably how you're going to have to update the software. So while you're in there and doing that, dig around in some of the settings and make sure there's not some opt-outs that you want to do. Is the manufacturer of this device trustworthy? Are they even still in business? Because if you've got a device that's no longer supported, that's bad. You might want to do some searches. You know, you've already got the make and model. We found that out when we did the scan. So you, you know what the device's make and model is. You might want to search for the manufacturer name, plus words like hack or privacy or security or breach. Uh, for example, you might want to even look for acquired or sold or bankruptcy or things like that. 
just do a little research on the manufacturer. You might want to find out if this device has any known vulnerabilities. So what you could do at this point is search on the make and model of your device on the web, plus the terms CVE, which is for Common Vulnerability and Exposures, or KEV, which is kind of a newer term for Known Exploited Vulnerabilities. Like I said, you should find out if this device is still being supported. You should be able to go to the manufacturer's website and look for support and then search for your make and model, maybe on your serial number. And while you're there, that's probably where you're going to find software information for software updates. But while you're there, you might want to download the PDF manual for your device if you didn't save the paper one. Or personally, I like to digitize everything anyway. So uh, maybe you want to save the PDF copy of the manual. That's probably where you'll find it. And then while you're thinking about it, one more thing, think about should you move this device to your guest network? And if it's an IoT device, if it's an Internet of Things device, I'm going to say that you probably should. I've got a whole article on this called Be My Guest. There's a link to in this article as well. So once you've done all that, you should prepare for your software updates, which is going to be part of our remediate step, which is next. So, you know, figure out what version of software it's running, figure out what the latest version is. And if those are the same, if they're not, that means you're going to need to upgrade it and then figure out how to update it. So get that information. This is a preparatory step. This is our assessment phase. So this is what you should be doing for all the devices that we now have left, whatever after the dust settles, after our simplify phase. Uh, all the devices left that are going to be on your home network. And so there you have it. There's your tip of the week. And next time we do this, we'll do the final phase, which is to remediate, which is actually to kind of fix things up and make them more secure. So there you have it, your news and your tip of the week. All right, everybody, that will do it for this week. Thank you again for tuning in. My higher level patrons will get the Merlin's musings for this week. And I'm going to be talking about I want to call it like, does anybody really know what time it is? Which is a reference to a Chicago song. There was a recent uh, article that I didn't bother reading here because it was kind of esoteric uh, about some problems that Microsoft Windows was having with randomly resetting the system clock. And that brought up a lot of thoughts. So I'm going to talk a little bit about time troubles, what sort of problems that can cause. We'll talk a little bit about GPS and NTP and things like that. So anyway, that's that will be for my higher level patrons in my Merlin's Musing segment for this week. So again, please send me your Dear Curry questions. If you want all the details, go to fdsd.me slash QNA. And again, I am giving once a month, I'm giving a free PDF copy of my book to people who have submitted questions, whether I answer them on the air or not. So if you've got questions about security and privacy stuff, anything that we talk about on the show, yeah, shoot me a question and I will try to answer it on the air. I could use some more book reviews. I'm actually getting a couple. I got I got a weird two-star review, which <laughs> those always suck. So, so now I need some more four and five-star reviews, preferably five, to uh, to offset that. But I, you know, I always need more. I had, I think at one point, gosh, 70-some reviews for one of the earlier versions of my book, and that all gets erased every time I put on a new edition. So I'm starting from scratch. Uh, so if you've read the book and you like it, please uh, consider putting a nice review on Amazon. I would very much appreciate that. Same thing for the podcast. Uh, I could always use uh, reviews for that too. It helps these things pop up to the top of search results when people go searching. So it, it is important. Got some great reviews coming up. Next week, we'll be talking to Tom Kemp about data brokers. We'll be talking to Nick Oles about phishing and then Corey Doctorow about some big tech stuff. Andy N from Proton is back. And then I got another great uh, interview coming up with somebody I've never talked to before, but have wanted to talk to for a very long time. Uh, I don't want to jinx it yet or spoil it. So uh, I'll, I'll sit on that one for a bit, but uh, fingers crossed that one will be coming up too. So anyway, subscribe now. And that way, when those interviews hit, you will get them automatically on your podcast app. All right, everybody, take care out there. Stay safe. 
And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.